0: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello.
2: How are you? Fine. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you so much. I had, I had a lovely birthday, actually. And, and I just want to tell the listeners, my podcast co-host did the loveliest thing for me. Sent you a text message. Baked a cake, iced my name onto it, put a candle in it, lit the candle and then FaceTime me and got me to blow out the candle and make a wish. What a lovely thing to do. Who could ask for a kinder, more thoughtful co-host. Anything to say, Ed? Yeah, that wasn't me.
3: It was your other co-host. It was
2: Annabelle from the other podcast. But you did, yeah, you did okay. as you said, you sent me a lovely text
3: message. I know, OK, I, that was... It, was, it was I, very I can, thoughtful I can, of you. I can see a down. I, I did marked down. <laughs> I did say that the big present was coming later after lockdown.
2: My wife said my present's coming after lockdown. She said delivery date of the 1st of June was the earliest she could get.
3: Well, at least I'm in good company.
2: Um, so, uh, how's your week been? Otherwise, it's it's been good. I mean, it was it was the, the birthdays the thing that I remember mainly from it, because all the days sort of blur into one. But um, yeah, it was it was nice. We had some food delivered. She let me watch one of my favourite films, which is Have you ever seen a film called We Are the Best? It's a Swedish film. Oh, right no. Oh, it's great. It's about um some teenagers growing up in Stockholm in the 80s who decide to form a punk band and it's just a lovely feel good funny film Oh, it's by we are the Lucas... best. I look Do it's really good. It's by Lucas Muderson who he did a film called Together a few years ago which uh, was was really good. He's done a bunch of good stuff, but yeah, that's uh, that's my tip. I'll look out I'll,
3: I'll look out for it. How about you? Yep. Uh my success this week was persuading my was imposing my tastes on my children and persuading them to watch a film called All the President's Men with Robert uh, Redford and Dustin Hoffman about the Watergate saga, um, which how, they how quite enjoyed. How did you manage that? Well, it is quite exciting. It's quite sort of fast-paced mystery thrillery because once you're into they... it. But but how did how
2: did you get them to sit fr- sit down in front of all the presidents? Men? Well, we
3: have this thing called Family View, which is supposed to not be things that are just for the children. Uh-huh. Um, And so it's, I sort of, I kind of peddled it to them in family viewing and actually, you know, it was sort of mixed, but one of them really liked it. One of them liked it enough, good enough. So maybe the ending, I thought the ending was a bit rubbish because it ends well before Nixon resigned. So they were annoyed about that.
2: Well, maybe, maybe they will grow up to be um, renowned journalists. Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah. Inspired by that film. Um, Should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes, this week we're talking about what corporate bailouts should look like. Uh, Governments around the world already uh, in this crisis, we've seen unprecedented measures to deal with the economic fallout from coronavirus – but hardest hit sectors, they are likely to need further government support. This includes airlines, of course, uh, we've read so much in the news about travel companies, other whole industries. So we're going to be asking what conditions should be attached to this support, uh, and also asking whether governments should take an equity stake in bailed out companies, as happened with banks following the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, so we're going to be hearing from Denmark, where MP Runa Lund will be telling us about the conditions Denmark has attached to corporate bailouts. Um, Interestingly, this includes preventing money from going to companies based in tax havens. And uh, we're also going to hear from Adrienne Buller from the think tank Commonwealth and uh, friend of the pod, economist Mariana Mazzucato, about why they think the government should use bailouts to help to tackle the climate crisis and transform the economy.
3: And then we'll be talking to former table tennis champion, Times columnist, best-selling author Matthew Said and his new book, Rebel Ideas, is about how diversity can help solve some of the world's trickiest problems. And it's a really fascinating conversation.
2: What's your reason to be cheerful this week? My reason to
3: be cheerful is that we've got a dog. What? What? It's a fictional dog. Uh. What, we've, what we've basically worked out, and, and, and he's called Chutney. <laughs> what, this is an inspiration of my wife, which is, and you might call it sort of as a kind of symptom of lockdown. What she, what what she basically said is, look, we don't need to buy a dog in order to have the sort of pleasure, some of the pleasures of a dog, and so we've got this dog called, now called Chutney, and we sort of, you know, as we're eating supper, we you know we say Chutney, sit, Chutney, stay, good boy, so we can do all of the things without the like picking up the poop uh you know having to do the walk um and all of that i sense, honestly it, it is absolute genius
2: are, are you guys okay yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we, we haven't quite decided what chutney looks like there's a there's a family debate going on about chutney um, what <laughs> chutney looks like And um, when we were when we were going for our state sponsored walk the other day and i i did talk, talk to a couple of our neighbors and i sort of one of, yeah, both of whom had dogs, and I said, "Oh, actually, we've got a dog now, but it's like a fictional dog. It's Chutney." They did look both look at me in a slightly peculiar way. Actually,
2: you should get. Do you remember those novelty dog leads that were just sort of an empty collar on the end
3: of a lead? Do you think that might be going a bit? That far? Might, might be a step too far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But basically, Chutney is now part of our household. Is he a good boy? Definitely. We're having trouble making him sit before he has his snack. But how's the toilet training going? Like, like a dream. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's your reason to be cheerful?
2: Well, you know, when usually and in in normal times, you're here in my attic with me, and behind you are many, many bookshelves full of books about the Beatles. Yeah, I'm reading a new book about the Beatles, which is so good. I'm. Uh, you know and any spare minute i get you know if, if, if it's just a trip to the loo or something to do a couple more pages it's brilliant and i don't generally just buy biographies of the beatles anymore because you know i've got all these books but um it's by Craig Brown, the satirist who has written for Private Eye forever. He also, um, apparently wrote a very good book about Princess Margaret a couple of years ago. And it's, it's called One, Two, Three, Four, The Beatles in Time. And it's the story of the Beatles told through tiny moments throughout their career. And the, and, and it's, it's funny in parts. He, he goes to sort of fan conventions. He visits a depressing tour of Hamburg by some guy who's been doing the same tour for 40 odd years so it's properly funny but the way that he shows character and shows what they became and their lasting effect on the world and pop culture in the 20th century is is so good i can't recommend it highly enough
3: how interesting well we should have look out for that it's really good
0: you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd
3: Well, I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by Runa Lund, who is a Red-Green Alliance MP in Denmark. They are part of the majority in the parliament supporting the minority social democratic uh, government. Runa, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for inviting me. Before we get into the
3: uh, Danish approach to these issues, tell us how lockdown is for you. You're actually in the parliament today, so you're not doing it virtually. You are actually at work. Tell us how it's been for you, the lockdown.
4: Well, it's not so tough here as it is in, in Britain. But the parliament doesn't work as it normally does. I mean, we can't miss physically every negotiation we have. They're, they're almost always uh, almost uh, using Microsoft uh, Teams or Zoom or a similar service. But um, it's busy these days. I guess it's the same with you.
3: It is. Everybody is adapting. So tell us... Um about the way in which the Danish government has approached this issue of uh, support for corporations who are in difficulty? Because your, the, the approach of the government, the minority government, has attracted attention um, certainly uh, elsewhere in Europe and indeed around the world.
4: Yes, we have agreed uh, and negotiated uh, eight measures which now come close to around 400 billion Danish crowns, which is, I think, around 40 billion um, uh, British pounds. And uh, what has created quite a lot of uh, international attention is that we have said that companies registered in tax havens, they cannot be eligible for aid. Additionally, we have also said that firms applying for an extension of um, the eight packages that we just uh, agreed uh, upon. They must promise not to pay dividends or make share buybacks in, in 2020 and, and, and also 2021. And just explain
3: when you say an extension, what do you mean by an extension of the support? Extension, it
4: extension means we, we have negotiated so many uh, uh, Corona aid packages the last month. So this was just the latest extension. So
3: but it's generally conditions. Is it on large bailouts, not so much for SMEs, that these conditions apply? These uh, these conditions apply for everyone. Right.
4: Yeah.
3: And and do you think these measures um, go far enough? Are there other things you'd like to have seen? Is it controversial in Denmark or is it broadly uh, supported? How, how, how's the reaction been
4: and, and, and what do you make of them? It, it used to be controversial. I would say just four weeks ago, we were actually the only party actively calling for these measures to be implemented, and now it's reality. Actually, uh, all ten parties in the Danish Parliament—they are part of this agreement now, which is quite interesting. Also, the, the extreme right—they they're, they're part of the agreement—and uh, so 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 it's actually. These are new times. I mean, things are moving um, very quickly, politically speaking, these days. It's, it's, it's really interesting. But I must also say that the measures that we have uh, uh, taken, they're not comprehensive enough. I mean, we could have done it even better. For example, that when we're talking about tax havens in the agreement, it's actually only the European Union's blacklist, which only consists of 12 countries. So so I mean the, 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 that list should have been even longer, but uh it 's a starting point, and I can see that what we have done in Denmark is um, has created um, has given inspiration to to other countries, for example in france and, and, and germany
3: and you 've said that lo- uh, there 's been a lot of movement in the last um, Four weeks. What do you um, attribute the 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 changing mood to? Is it the experience of two thousand and eight, the financial crisis? Is it uh, uh, you know other issues? What
4: what, what's the reasons? You know, last time ten years ago, uh, the the right wing they kind of won the political debate during the crisis. I mean, we saw big uh, bailouts of the bank paid by. uh, the, with the taxpayers' money, at least that was what we saw in Denmark. But now there's this feeling that if, if the taxpayers are supposed to save jobs and, and corporations, if we, we're not we are not spending billions of Danish crowns, crowns, corner to, to, to save the shareholders. I mean, I mean to, to, to save the shareholders' profits. So if we take a risk and spend money, I think people don't like to see their money end up in a tax haven on the other side of the world. They want the money to be used for saving jobs and, and companies in Denmark. And tell us, because I think all of us are
3: wanting to do the absolute most for public health to be protected, but but I think everybody is also conscious that at some point this public health crisis will be over, um, there'll be big uh, economic uh, consequences, but there'll, and there'll also be... Uh, significant uh, deficits and debts. H- wh- where is the debate around the economic sort of recovery and and what comes afterwards? Where is that debate going in Denmark?
4: In Denmark, that debate is going uh, pretty much in the in the direction that we need to tackle this crisis by investing in combating climate change. So many initiatives that we can that we can. Um, uh, finance so many actions we can take to combat climate change, for example, green transportation yeah, and 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 uh, uh, putting up, investing in even more wind turbines and 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 initiatives like that. So the 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 green transition of our economy uh, is is very much seen as a very central part of our way to 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 to, to, to tackle and. Uh, an economic crisis, and that's not just my party. That's actually also right-wing parties in the Danish Parliament. Well, Rune, I, I
3: feel very bad that we've um, we've interviewed you at uh, around four o'clock Danish time. We've probably kept you from your um, uh, family and your children. It's not very family-friendly and not very Danish. But but thank you so much for joining us.
4: I, I, I'm really happy that you invited me to join you. It was uh, it, it's been a pleasure.
2: And here to talk about how governments should approach bailouts, we have Adrian Buller, who is a senior research fellow at Commonwealth, a think tank working on democratic ownership. Adrian, hello. I wondered if you could start by talking to us a little bit about just the situation at the moment and why specific companies and sectors are calling for further bailouts in response to the current crisis.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think it goes without saying that this is, you know, absolutely unprecedented in terms of the kind of economic crisis we're seeing as a fallout from what's sort of a mandated uh, hibernation of the entire economy. Um, We've had fairly unprecedented uh, measures introduced so far to help businesses. So for smaller businesses, um, sort of the coronavirus interruption loan scheme, and then for larger corporations, a different sort of financing mechanism that they can access. Um, And it's on a massive scale, but almost immediately you had certain industries that will be hardest hit, like airlines are a really good example, um, immediately sort of claiming that it won't be enough uh, to sustain them through the crisis. It's just not enough in scale. Um, there's also been problems in terms of businesses actually being able to access the schemes. Um, sort of, they're delivered through uh, high street banks to so smaller businesses, and that's created a lot of problems for people actually gaining access. So you have groups sort of lobbying for sort of more favorable terms and, and alternatives that could support them through.
2: That and, and those those fa- more favorable terms, I mean, they could, they could come in the form of a different type of government loan, or they could come in governments taking equity stakes and i'm interested to hear your thoughts on whether there should always be conditions on both those loans and equity stakes and and if so what sort of conditions should those be
5: um yeah so i think definitely um if we're going to be providing loans absolutely there should be conditions um and i'll get to the sort of equity stakes bit in a minute as sort of a distinct point because it's something that we at commonwealth work on a lot um and absolutely i think um anytime we're providing loans, um, we shouldn't just be sort of providing no strings attached cash to companies in particular that, you know, while this is an unprecedented crisis that you couldn't have expected most businesses to anticipate, you know, corporate behavior over the past decade and, and even preceding that a little bit um, has has sort of created a greater and greater vulnerability. So providing emergency loans should always come with sort of asks um, to you know, create greater resilience in the long term um, to prevent us needing to sort of take on this kind of burden in the future, but. Our position at Commonwealth is that rather than just loans, even with sort of strings attached and then conditionalities, so for airlines, people have called for loans to be attached with decarbonization targets, for example. Um, What we think is preferable overall is to uh, basically exchange cash for an equity stake in the company. Um, That's been floated by some companies themselves, but sort of imagining that equity stake as being temporary, whereas we would see the ideal situation in a lot of cases as being taking a permanent public stake so that you can not only sort of grow public wealth and treat the government as an investor that gets to reap benefits as well as sort of helping uh, when businesses incur losses, um, but it also allows you to drive a shift as a stakeholder uh, in corporate behavior. So looking at things like decarbonization targets, uh, raising wages, um, at sort of decreasing the massive uh, gap between executive pay and pay for workers and and all those sorts of goals. Um, And taking a permanent equity stake um, enables you to do that while also allowing uh, the public to sort of recoup some of the costs that will uh, occur from sort of all of the bailouts of companies that we're currently doing.
3: Is part of your argument, Adrian, that um, if government is taking a risk with a a a, a big investment that it should get some of the upside, at least in certain cases.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So I think you've hit the nail on the head there. There's sort of a, a, you know, two-pronged expectation of what private investors are entitled to as investors, which is, you know, they take on a risk um, and are therefore entitled to gains in good times. And and what government is expected to do, which is sort of the reverse, which is, you know, this idea that we shouldn't be allowed to reap any benefits from investing, but that we should be expected to socialise losses um, whenever times get tough for businesses.
3: And to those workers who are very understandably worried about their immediate situation and the potential survival of their company what would you say to people who said well you know this sounds sort of okay in a in an ideal world but actually this is a sort of burning platform we just need to get money into these companies to save the workers jobs
5: yeah, and I guess um, I guess the key there is that you know we've already decided on a massive loan program, but there's there's no reason that that had to be the you know the most expedient or rapid way of doing this. Um, you know, the U the U S government, for example, is offering an alternative of cash for equity stakes. It's just as easy to do for businesses as a loan. It's just we've chosen uh, to pursue sort of the loans route. So there's nothing really preventing us from doing this when it comes to just the ease and speed with which you could actually pursue this.
2: How do you make sure that um, bailouts don't end up in the hands of shareholders?
5: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, that's a very good question. And then as it's, you know, currently laid out without conditions or without mandating that if you're receiving government support, you can't engage in layoffs, for example, or that, you know, you can't continue to pay out dividends, then a lot of the support does risk just sort of further ending up um, lining the pockets of shareholders or supporting, you know, executives well, um, you know, other staff get laid off. EasyJet's a good example of that. Um, they received a £600 million uh, loan through the government support system. And, and you know, you had executives asking for staff to take two months unpaid leave. Um, so these are genuine risks. Um, and again, you know, part of that is if you're providing any cash, it should come with firm conditionality, which in the immediate term is, you know, committing to no layoffs, temporarily ending all shareholder payouts, so that's dividends and buybacks. But a public stake, again, in the long term, would be looking at, you know, changing corporate behaviour more broadly um, to tackle that kind of issue.
2: And, and on long term goals, and you touched on this before when you mentioned the aviation industry, um, how, how can these conditions on uh, public equity stakes and, and bailouts help help us in the context of the climate crisis?
5: Yeah, so that's definitely um, sort of the big question here, which is that it's really hard to think about uh, a long term crisis like climate change when you're confronted with something that's so immediately uh, sort of devastating and challenging to deal with. But I think what this crisis has exposed to us is that we have to be anticipating those kinds of risks and doing everything and we in our power um, in handling this crisis to sort of both mitigate uh, the risks of climate change as much as we can, as well as acknowledge that shocks will happen, there will be damage and to sort of build resilience for when those do those do occur. So airlines are a good example. Um, we can sort of both uh, use conditions or public equity stakes to sort of mandate gradual decarbonization uh, in a way that doesn't involve sort of sudden collapse of the industry, mass layoffs, you know, devastation to all the people and communities that work um, in that industry um, and sort of do so in a way that's controlled.
2: Do you have any thoughts on how you can build support for this across the political spectrum? Now, of, of course, we have a conservative government at the moment who have announced this you know i think somebody i don't remember who but somebody used the phrase the other week on the podcast it's easy to be uh, keynesian when you're in a foxhole <laughs> um but you know tr- traditionally on the right this th- there's a you know squeamishness to say the least about public ownership um how how do you reshape the thinking on <laughs> on what you do with these kinds of uh public equity stakes
5: yeah, I mean, one thing I will admit is that I am by no means uh, a political strategist, definitely <laughs> more of a abstract policy side. But I will say um something that I think people find compelling is that, you know, a lot of what we're calling for in this crisis in particular, when it comes to sort of cash for equity, is ultimately just common sense. If you are an investor, it's what anyone would expect in taking on a risk in providing someone with cash, you expect to get something in return. So it's not like we're asking for anything that's sort of outside of the norm or standard business practices. It's just that we have such an embedded ideology that state is bad. Um, But I think if you can contextualize for people that, you know, this isn't anti-business, this isn't anti-corporation, this is about, um, you know, bailing out businesses and corporations in a way that bails out the corporation itself rather than the shareholders and its productive generative capacity that's bailing out the workers, it's bailing out, you know, regular people to use that phrase. And I think that does resonate. Um, even if you know, when you use the phrase public stakes or public ownership, it does trigger a reaction. But again, you know, political strategy, sadly, not my strong point. That's just a, a personal feeling.
2: <laughs> and, and are there other countries you can point us in the direction of who are doing a good job of this?
5: Um, Yeah, I think so. In terms of um, public equity stakes, you know, surprisingly, we're seeing it happening to a certain extent with the Trump administration. So they offered, you know, cash for equity um, in in airlines. Um, So you kind of find it in surprising places, maybe not for the right reasons. Um, And again, um, moves by Denmark and France, for example, uh, to to not sort of provide bailouts to companies with uh, entities registered in tax havens. I think that is a huge, huge step and something that we in the UK should be looking toward.
2: Adrienne Buller from Commonwealth, thank you so much for talking to us.
5: Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here.
2: Well, I'm delighted to say we are now joined by friend of the pod, economist and director of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at UCL, Mariana Mazzucato. Hello. Hello there and and we're flat we're, we're honored in fact because I know you are advising governments around the world and here you are uh, advising the Jeffocracy so I'm you know, deeply honored by that um, who, who who's talking to you then I mean everybody by the sounds of it
1: so I mean I'm talking to different governments that I was already speaking to before about economic growth, how to drive it in ways that actually looks more at the directionality of growth not just the rate of growth and the idea now is that because this crisis is actually really requiring governments to step up and to inject cash in the economy how can we make sure that we don't make the same mistake that we made with the financial crisis back in 2008 when government also of course stepped up but basically all the money all the liquidity that was poured into the economy just basically ended up back into the financial sector. It didn't actually create new opportunities that drove our economies in ways that made them more resilient. And so if you look at the trillions today that are being poured into the economy, how do we, you know, really structure it in such a way which creates, for example, conditionalities. Um, And so I'm speaking to the government in South Africa where I'm on the president's economic advisory team, which has recently become almost more like a COVID task force, even though we're still looking at the big issues there. I'm on the COVID task force in Italy, but also on a recently formed Vatican uh, task force. In fact, I just got off the phone with the Vatican. From the, so you've just
3: come from the Pope to Jess. I mean, you know, you are really going up in the world after <laughs> the Pope to be talking to Jess, Mariana. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. Um, anyway, so I, I think it's urgent, because I'll tell you one issue I'm having with the with the different governments, I sometimes get pushback. I'm told, okay, Mariana, of course, that's important. Of course, for example, the Green Deal is important. But now we have an urgent uh, situation, which is really about, you know, COVID and health, and we need to resolve the immediate crisis. And I keep saying, hold on, you are never going to have the negotiating hand you have now, the kind of upper hand in terms of really being able to structure and shape the future like you do now, because there's such a demand for you to be helping uh, industry. And so, for example, with the airlines, that's the most obvious one. There should be you know, conditions, for example, on reduction of carbon emissions, even you know, over a longer period of time. The cash can be given now, but there should be something in the contract of that bailout that ensures that the airline industry becomes more sustainable. Um, Elizabeth Warren, I think, has led the discussion in the U.S., so she's thought of about seven different conditions, and that's what's quite interesting in the UK, where even the you know eighty uh, percent coverage of the wage bill didn't have conditions attached. For example, to at least not even lay off the workers. That's kind of the minimal condition you would expect, let alone more refined ones.
2: But should there always be conditions attached? And do you always favor equity stakes over loans?
1: Well. So, first of all, I've been arguing for conditions now for a long time. There's a whole chapter on that in my book called Entrepreneurial State, where I argued that the whole point of the state being entrepreneurial is not just that it puts in money in the economy, but it also negotiates. It really, again, shapes and doesn't just fix. Economists talk about fixing market failures, and that means you're always too little, too late. You always have to wait for something to mess up before you come in, and then you're panicking and out of breath. So what do I mean by shape? It's not only about directionality in that green deal kind of way. It's also making sure you're governing the conditions of production or innovation in such a way that is really in the public interest. That means making sure, for example, that the patent system is not abused. That means that, for example, in the health sector, if you have public funding of medicines, that the prices reflect that. And that also means sometimes that you would take, for example, equity stakes, I often give the example of Tesla and Solyndra to uh, um, um, green companies, if you want, which both got a $500 uh, guaranteed loan by the government. And when Solyndra went bust, the citizens had to bail them out. When Tesla did well, the idea was, oh, this is private enterprise. So in that case, it would have made a lot of sense, just like in the cases today, when it's downstream investments to get equity, because that implies risk from the government when it's providing whether it's a bailout or a loan, to a company, not the upstream, say, research and development process, that company might go bust, so the government might never get back its money. That's a sort of risk. So, you know, this kind of risk-reward relationship, which people study in Finance 101, (laughs) um, somehow doesn't apply to government. Um, I don't think it should always be equity versus loans. In some cases, loans, of course, make sense. But it's precisely, again, making sure that if you are going to give a guaranteed loan, for example, that the output, how it's structured and how the process is governed is done in the public interest.
3: And, of course, Solyndra was used, it was a solar power company, I think, and it was used to bash the Obama administration about the loans yeah. that it provided. Yeah. And, and uh, whereas, obviously, Tesla um, um, has, has been more, more successful, you've already made reference to 2008 Bank bailouts. Just say a little bit more about the lessons we learn from that for the current crisis in terms of this issue of conditionality and so on.
1: Yeah. So the the, the financial crisis in two thousand and eight really required governments to step up both in terms of um, protecting uh, all the people that lost their jobs. So we saw uh, payments, if you want, so kind of welfare benefits uh, increasing um, just because they had to. Uh, so the amount of If you want, the public bill increased there, but that wasn't necessarily strategic. It just had to be because there was a big uh, problem in the system. We saw huge amounts of money going in from the central banks, so trillions literally uh, put into the economy. So liquidity was created. We saw bailouts of all sorts of different sectors, for example, automobiles. Um, So Chrysler literally for a period was a public company a uh, state owned company in um in the US. And let me just say something about the Chrysler situation because that's almost a, a bit of an exception of what happened in the US. When Chrysler was basically again in public hands, Fiat came to the US to buy Chrysler, Sergio Marchionne who um actually passed away recently. Um and Fiat wanted to buy Chrysler and Obama in a rare moment of kind of confidence said, "Okay, But only if you invest in hybrid technology, hybrid engines in this country. And Marchione said, okay, no problem. Was he doing it in Italy? No. (laughs) No one asked him to. So, Italy, where I'm from, has a history of really problematic public private uh, relationships. So, lots of handouts and subsidies and guarantees and very little kind of, you know, real negotiation about what, you know, that kind of give and take. What does the public sector get back? What does the private sector need? It shouldn't be a stick. It should be a really interesting, engaged conversation. Um, And in Italy, you know, there just wasn't that conversation going on. Similarly, I found it quite interesting in Germany. Another example of an interesting conditionality was set when the steel sector needed a bailout, Um, similar to what steel needed in the UK, I think it was last spring, and actually in different parts of the world, steel has come begging for money, And what they did in Germany, because they had a really interesting green vision for the Energiewende policy, the government said to the steel sector, well, we will help you only if you promise to reduce your material content, which then they did. And the reason this is so interesting is that whereas in Davos this year, where I was, there was all this talk about purpose and stakeholder capitalism, that doesn't just happen because a company wakes up and decides to be more purpose-driven. Purpose also is really about the form of, if you want, market economy that we want to uh, have. And so it's very much a relationship between the public and private. So most companies that have become more purposeful across their whole value chain, not just icing on the cake through corporate social responsibility, have often done so because that was actually asked for in exchange for something else. So again, conditionalities, there's all sorts of evidence that they can help structure industries in better ways, which, by the way, occur through innovation. So the kind of, you know, positive spillover there is that in order to reduce your material content, you have to do it by investing and innovating across the value chain of steel. So Germany also benefits now by having one of the most innovative steel sectors. And um, and so what happened in the financial crisis was that, for the most part, the help that was provided to industry by the public sector came without conditions. Lots of money was poured in. And because it wasn't accompanied by ambitious fiscal policies and investment policies, that money then also didn't have a place to rest, if you want, in terms of the actual structures in the real economy, so ended up going back to the financial sector.
3: Last question. We, we last spoke to you about your book, The Value of Everything. Tell us how you think this cri- crisis reshapes our ideas about value and who really creates
1: wealth and who really, which workers really matter to the country. Well, what I think will be very interesting is if this concept of key workers, which is the word used in the UK, in the US they tend to use more the word essential worker, workers, whether it also becomes a way to frame the economy, so the essential economy, which doesn't mean that we should become completely ideological, you know, like you're not essential, you are, but what does it mean to have an essential economy? What does it mean to structure it around notions of the common good? That was the concept I was just speaking to with the Vatican, because they say, you know, we've been talking about the common good for a long time, but it's kind of steeped in morality. We need an equivalent concept in, uh, in economics, where, of course, we have, public good, but it's just seen as a correction for something the private sector is not doing. So I'm really hoping that post-COVID that we really learn the lessons about, you know, these workers that were on the front line and that are continuing to risk their lives precisely because we have undervalued that service that they're providing. Had we, you know, valued it properly, of course they should have their personal protection equipment. Of course they would have had, you know, not only stocks of it, but we would have had a whole structure of um, health systems around them that could also be much more adaptable in a situation like this. Um, And so it's not just about getting them ready for an emergency, but what does it need to value that work in good times, not just bad times and really value also the structures, the social structure, the social infrastructure. We often talk about physical infrastructure, the social infrastructure around essential work and key work.
3: Okay. Well, look, Um, Mariana Mazzucato, it's great to talk to you. Um, thank you for sparing the time between the Pope and the, uh, president, um, of South Africa, and I'm sure we'll see you again soon.
1: Great. Thank you very much.
3: So what did you think?
1: I I found it a very
2: interesting conversation. I think with this, sometimes you can look at companies or corporations as being these you know in inverted commas evil entities or the people who own them or the the, you know the public figures that we think of as being these people who've amassed huge personal wealth and but then at the same at the same time it's just thousands of people's jobs isn't it so governments have to act and i really liked what Adrienne had to say in that if you were somebody who's investing in a company, you'd have certain expectations uh, and uh, leverage over, over the money in your investment. So that has to apply when it's taxpayers' money. And, you know, you got to look closely at what happened in 2008 and learn the lessons. Otherwise, you just privatising profits and socialising losses.
0: Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. for Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast, or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast.
5: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is
0: jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now save 50 percent on the sleep number limited edition smart bed for a limited time for jd power 2023 award information visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up
2: And our cheerful person this week is, uh, I think a polymath is, is probably the right uh, description. A journalist, author, former England table tennis champion, podcaster, and his new book is Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking. Matthew Said, hello. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Ed. I, I love that intro, by the way. I've got to tell you, though, when you said polymath, you, you sort of giggled a bit as if there was an ironic overtone, which I, I'm, I, no, I, I'm, no, that's fine. No. I mean, I don't think one could ever describe <laughs> themselves as a polymath, but it's a nice thing for somebody else to say about you, isn't it? That's very kind. And thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a fantastic podcast. I'm looking forward
3: to And also, I mean, look, he, I know Matthew a bit, and he's also, he, he's a polymath and a really nice bloke.
2: That was said with iron. No, he's really <laughs> sincere. Like, see, the great thing about this, the great thing it's about sincere. this podcast is we can actually see each other on, on our screens because we're doing this via Zoom. And, Ed, there was a look of huge sincerity. No, and I feel the same way about you.
3: I know, and you also didn't say, Jeff. he was nearly a Labour MP. Yes, and I know this. So
2: this was back in 2001. What was What was the story? What happened? What went wrong? We met. That was when
3: we met, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it was it was an interesting time. I was c- coming to the end of my table tennis career um in the build up to the Olympics in Sydney. I was just coming up to my 30th birthday, knew that the table tennis career had a relatively short time horizon that I'd have to hang up my paddle. So I thought I'm going to have to transition at some point. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? A question that my father had asked when I left <laughs> school by the way to become a professional ping pong. Um and uh I thought, yeah, you know, I was really interested in politics. It was the kind of high noon of Tony Blair's time as prime minister. So I stood in, frankly, an unwinnable seat in Wokingham, but I re- it was against John Redwood. You remember him? Yes, he's still there. He's still going. He's still yep. going. Indefatigable. Um, Definitely. I once called him a Vulcan. By the way, in, in was, one it of you, the was it you? Was it you who coined that? I didn't coin it. It Uh had already been coined, but I used it, and perhaps slightly unfairly, and he took it extremely personally, and he looked at me, and he said, Matthew, I want to make one thing crystal clear. I am not an alien. (laughs) And I glanced to the front row of the audience in the church hall in Caversham, and the chairman of the Tory constituency party was there, and he caught my eye, and he mouthed to me, he is.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and I, I sort of vaguely remember that you were very impressed, it's obviously all about me, um, that you were very impressed that I knew Desmond Douglas. Yes. That I was yes. a table tennis
2: fan as a child. I was impressed by that because that is a name that is revered in the large ping pong community of the world, but is not terribly well known in the rest of the community. You see, I, I, so, I yes, I no was idea. impressed with that.
3: You had no idea. No. He was the My- top like, British tennis player for a long time when you and I, Jeff, I know you consider yourself... I mean, I'm slightly age, younger. When, when, when you and I were um, growing up.
2: Tell, tell us about this latest book, Rebel Ideas. It's, it explores the power of cognitive diversity. Um, what, what's that then? So uh, diversity, it's a, it's a term that I think it has a lot of resonance in the modern world. But my sense was, when I started writing the book, that it's quite misunderstood. We typically think about diversity in demographic terms, differences in race and gender and social class and religious background. This book focuses a bit more on cognitive diversity, diversity in thought, differences in perspectives and insights and information and the models and heuristics that we deploy implicitly or otherwise to make sense of the world around us. It's saying there's often an overlap between these two conceptions. But I think in broad terms, if it's optimized correctly, it can have a massive impact on wise decision-making in government and in institutions and in businesses and actually in our own lives. I mean, suppose you were putting, I mean, to give a pretty obvious example, imagine you're putting a team together to come up with a creative campaign, you're an advertising executive, and you want that campaign to connect with a very broad demographic of consumers. And let's say everyone in your team is white, middle-aged, middle-class, private school-educated Oxbridge graduates. Is it fair to say that it is not inconceivable that that team will fail to come up with ideas that will connect with people whose lives are very different from So, better. like blind spots, so like bl- massive blind spots? Massive blind spots. And you see this, I think, in many political contexts. However, if you're putting together a team to come up with a design for an aircraft engine, uh, the fact that I'm mixed race, I'm half Pakistani, half Welsh – Quite an unusual combination. But the fact that I'm mixed race and grew up in 1980s UK with those experiences is not necessarily going to give me any pertinent insights into how tweaking the design of that engine might improve its aerodynamism. In other words, diversity is terribly important, but you have to map the diversity to the dimensions of the problem you're trying to solve. And at the moment, in the world today... That is not done effectively. But by the way, it's not done effectively not just by governments and corporations but by scientists, by hedge funds, by all sorts of different people because the wisdom of a team is not a simple – this is quite a technical point – but the wisdom of a team is not a simple sum of the expertise of its members. It's both the expertise of its members and their relevant diversity. So how – That is really interesting. It is interesting. How, How do you go about mapping it then? So, say – well, um, what would be a good example? It, let's say for – let me give you an example from history, and it, uh, hopefully a slightly more narrative-based example. Um, one of the toughest challenges during the Second World War was cracking the Enigma code. And the fact that the team at Bletchley Park was able to do that, many historians think that it changed the outcome of the Second World War, But broadly speaking, most agree that it shortened the length of the war by two to three years. Now, if you're trying to create a great code-breaking team, if you're anything like me, you're thinking number crunchers, great mathematicians. And they did hire great mathematicians, including Alan Turing and others. Um, But on January the 12th, 1942, the Daily Telegraph organized a crossword competition a reader had written to the editor saying the crosswords have got too easy and I can solve them in less than 10 minutes. And the editor was slightly sceptical, didn't think that this was possible in less than 10 minutes under controlled conditions. But he said, if anyone thinks they can, we will make a £100 donation to charity, which was a lot of money back then. So on January the 12th, 30 would-be crossword enthusiasts congregated on the newsroom floor in Fleet Street, one of whom was Stanley Sedgwick, who was a lowly bank clerk and he learned to play the Daily Telegraph crossword on his commute in from the suburbs. And he performed brilliantly, by the way, just over 10 minutes, but he impressed hugely. But what he didn't know, and the editor of the Daily Telegraph didn't know, and none of the other competitors is one of the observers that day was from the British Secret Security Service and a week later Sedgwick got a letter saying we need to see you on a matter of supreme national urgency. He's quite surprised by the way because what Bletchley Park had quintessentially they were early adopters of cognitive diversity. They realised the team of Alan Turing's wouldn't have got the job done and that crossword enthusiasts have something critical in common with code breakers which is that they're very good quasi readers. Readers. each national newspaper has about five crossword setters a very good crossword solver can identify the setter from the first one or two clues and therefore efficiently anticipate what's coming they do it very quickly and code breakers as it happens have to get into the minds of the people inputting into the enigma machines because they're supposed to put the letters in randomly but under pressure they put it in the first three letters of a girlfriend's name or the first three letters of a swear word and sedgwick was brilliant at gaining those critical insights. He worked in Hut 10. Um, and along with him and Turing and cultural historians and linguists, more than 50% of the people at Bletchley Park were women. There were Jewish crypto analysts. What Alistair Denniston, the person who hired the team, did is he mapped the problem, found all the relevant insights – and therefore got this massive uplift in collective intelligence.
3: Your book was partly inspired, I am gather, by your work advising Gareth Southgate on managing the England football team. I'm a big fan of Gareth Southgate. T- t- tell us about that. Yeah, that's int- Okay, so it's fair to say
2: that was significant in me writing the book because it was weird. When I was brought in to advise him and Philip Nerville, the, the England women's coach, it's, it was a very eclectic group. There was a guy called Dave Brailsford, who's a yes, cycling coach, yes. Yes, and indeed. Manoj Badali, who's a British-Asian high-tech startup guy, and Lucy Giles, who's from the Sandhurst Military Training Academy, and Michael Barber, who's an educationalist, yeah. and um, Stuart Lancaster, a rugby coach. And a lot of football journalists said, this is ridiculous. Why are these people advising on football? You know, Harry Redknapp knows more about football than Manoj Badali. Tony Pulis has forgotten more about football than Lucy Giles will ever know. And that's true. They have a huge amount of individual knowledge. But this is a point about cognitive diversity. Southgate already knows what they know. They were socialized into the basic assumptions of English football, a way of setting up tactically, a way of recovering, what kind of a diet. And so what you get in that situation is people agreeing all the time. They're becoming more confident about potentially gravely flawed assumptions. The interesting thing about this group is when Brailsford says something that no one else in the room knew about how, I don't know, big data sets can improve personalization of diet and cycling. That's when you get the… What, what did sparm- you bring to it, Matthew? Sod all, basically. <laughs> no, <laughs> come on. No, so, I mean, I, the stuff of the kind that I'm talking about with you now because, I mean, one of the so so sort of unusually having missed out on politics and got into journalism and writing books, I get the opportunity to work with um, businesses at quite a high level, with with, uh, different kinds of organisations, and I've got the time to sort of study what science is saying about psychology
3: and performance. So, I try and bring, inject a few of those insights. One last question. Dominic Cummings attracted some attention for saying he needed geeks and somethings in the civil service uh he also recommended a book called super forecasting the art of science of prediction by philip tetlock and dan gardner which i confess i bought having heard 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 a bit about it is this in the sort of cummings um it's it's of a piece with that thought is it
2: oh yeah absolutely so cummings as it happened followed me on twitter about a week before sending out that tweet i think he had read the book he took one line from it um but it takes a bit of wisdom to know how to optimize properly. The Tetlock uh, book, Superforecasting, I mean, it has two aspects. One is the best forecasters update their predictive models in the light of their errors. So, in other words, they're highly adaptive. But absolutely, this, the other key thing is they're also um, capable of thinking in a diverse way. They use a lot of different lenses, heuristics, and tools to improve their forecasting so yes it's it's uh it fits into that that terrain
3: it is fantastic to talk to you um at this uh, difficult time for everybody you've definitely given us massive uh food for thought the book is rebel ideas thanks so much for joining us thank you
0: reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd
3: well that's about all from us um Please do get in touch if you've got ideas for future episodes. If you want to share your experience of lockdown or living through the crisis, cheerfulpodcast.com. You can get in touch with us. We're always keen to hear from people uh, about their their thoughts. And also, you can find a lot more information about the um, subjects we covered on this week's episode and previous episodes on our website.
2: Thanks to our guests, Runa Lund, Mariana Mazzucato, and Adrian Buller. Uh, thanks also to the brilliant Matthew Saeed for telling us about his new book. Emma Caution produced our
3: podcast with backup and research by Joe Kenyon and Joel Pierce. Ed seed did our music. James Deacon did our idents. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. And our artwork is done by... Henry Cole. Well... I'm off to take Chutney for a walk.
2: <laughs> what about you? I'll tell you what will be worrying if Chutney goes missing and you start sort of sellotaping signs to the neighbourhoods and uh, to the lamp posts in your neighbourhood.
3: That's when we've got to start worrying about you. That would be worrying. He's been birthday boy. Happy birthday to you, Jeff Lloyd.
2: He's been digging his way out of a hole, and these have been reasons to be cheerful.